Good morning. It's Friday, October 23rd, 2015. It's a Friday edition of Tech Talk Today. I'm pumped up to be here. We have some really big stories to get into. A lot to cover. Let me bring in the Mumble Room. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Yo. Hello. 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 Hi. Hello. And that last voice there was Benjamin, Benjamin Carenza from Glucosio and many other things, I guess. We're going to get into that more. But Benjamin, welcome to Tech Talk Today. It's good to have you here. Why, hello? Why, hello. So uh, Glucosio is a new app that Ben has, or Benjamin has out uh, for Android. It's open source, and it does some really cool things. And so we brought him on today to talk about it. And uh, I've been following him for a while, too. So we'll chat with him in a little bit. But first, I want to get into the pretty big news story of, well, the week, it turns out. Uh, This is a pretty significant, quote-unquote, cyber attack that has struck TalkTalk. And they're calling it a significant Breach. Now, uh, if you're not, oh, hi there. Oh, hi there, scrolling. Hello. That's, there you go. Yeah, that's my other desktop. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. No, that was good. Uh, if you're not familiar, because I wasn't really much before this, uh, this is a pretty well, a pretty well known service. Four million users affected by this, potentially all customers of the service. And it is a phone and broad, broadband provider. And Corky joined us because he's a former customer of TalkTalk, and he wanted to break it down with his perspective on it. So, uh, Corky, I've got just a a little clip here I'm going to play about it, and then uh, I want to get your opinion and your take on this. So here, I'm just going to say, hold on. There we go. We brought down all our websites yesterday lunchtime and have spent the last 24 hours investigating with the Metropolitan Police and various security advisors to understand the scale of the attack and what had actually happened. And we've taken the... Now, one more. I'm going to play one more clip uh, on the issue just because I want to take these back to back because this has been moving pretty fast. To be honest, I've not had very many hours sleep and my team have been working really hard over the last 12 hours to make sure that we inform all of our customers as a precaution. We don't know for certain how many customers information has been stolen which is why as I say we've taken the precaution of telling all of our customers about this attack and uh, are working really hard to make sure that we... Now there's a few interesting details about the attack but as we record right now it appears that they've also received a ransom demand they have confirmed to the media that they have received a ransom demand for all this. So, Corky, when we, before we got on air, you were grumbling about how you were a former customer, and I'm guessing you've had pre- previous um, issues with TalkTalk as well. So can you fill us in on some of the details here? Well, in the UK, TalkTalk are known not for being a good ISP, but having the lowest prices. So that's why, why their customer base is so big compared to, to uh-huh. the others. Uh, and and I, this is... A, and I did some reading online, too, and it seems like they kind of have a bad track record with history. In fact, it took them forever to get SSL enabled on their website. They have had issues reported to them in the past that took them a very long time to resolve. And now it appears that, like, their security on this might have just been breached with a simple SQL injection. Well, in, if you look anywhere, you'll see their customer satisfaction is always the lowest out of the ISP. So this isn't surprising at all. <laughs> they probably didn't even try. <laughs> that's a that's a damning that's a damning sense. So what uh, what is the scope of this? Is this a is this like a is this a massive breach or is this something that uh, is only going to affect a small amount of the population over there? Well, it'll it'll affect a large amount because, as they said, it doesn't appear that they had proper security practices. Lots of bank details, credit card details are going to be stolen. Well, let me uh, let me play. I'm going to play a little uh, a little bit. I don't know if she says it here or not. So, I'll just play another few seconds of her. This is uh, the chief operating officer, I believe, or uh, the CEO. I'm not quite sure what her title is. 
Um, I apologize for that because I was reading through this this morning. Uh, her name is uh, Dido Harding. She is the chief. She is Talk Talk's chief executive is her title. That's kind of why I guess I kind of got those two together. And she, in every single interview, has been making a really interesting point. And uh, I don't know if it's going to be in this part of the clip I want, but I'll, let's just, just in case we can grab it. Cyber attacks, cyber crime. Are the oh, yep, this is it right here. This is exactly it. Sure that we can protect them and give them advice on how they can protect themselves. We're working incredibly hard to do everything we can. To- now, listen to this line, because we're working incredibly hard to do everything we can. But you see, this is now the crime of our time. This is now the issue of our time. We couldn't have been we, – we were victims. We couldn't have done anything better. Protect our customers. Uh, and I would say that uh, cyber attacks, cyber crime are the crimes of our era, of our generation. There were 625,000 cyber crime incidents in the UK through the summer alone. So I'm afraid Talk Talk is not the only ones being affected by this. It's something that's affecting all of us. Now, she's thrown that number out in every single interview. She's thrown that exact line out in every – Every single interview, and it's. I want to. I want to. I want to break it down a little bit for us because this is. This is the kind of crap that really gets me. Protect themselves. We're working incredibly hard to do everything we can to protect our customers. Uh, and I would say that uh, cyber attacks, cyber crime, are the crimes of our era, of our generation. Here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. Malpractice, incompetence, things that are not implemented correctly are the crime of our era. That's the mistake of our era, is all of these people are going out and as fast as they can, as cheap as possible, and rolling out online services, and they are not paying the experts, and they are not listening to the experts who are trying to properly secure them. The bureaucrats in the decision-making positions roll these systems out. They force-feed it down everybody's throats. They don't design a system. They don't allow for a system to be designed that can be properly secured and maintained online. And then when they get hacked, they say, oh, well, this is the crime of our century. Just like when Sony got hacked, oh, well, it was North Korea. What could we do? We were it was, and of course this this is this is for this obviously is jihadist hackers that did this. Jihadist hackers are doing this, and they have a ransom. It couldn't. It's not our fault. It was it was a state attack. It was jihadist. What could we have done? What could we have done? Meanwhile, leaked Sony documents show that they had internal discussions in their meetings, saying, you know what? Gosh, we could pay millions of dollars every year to keep our infrastructure secure, or we just take a one time hit if we ever get hacked, and that may or may not even happen. So to us, yeah. You know what? It's we looked at the risks, and it saves us more money just to get hacked. That's literally their conversation inside Sony, and that's what I have been in those conversations before. And then after this, they go, "Well, it's not our fault. It's, it's, what could we do? It was jihadists. It was jihadists. We couldn't do anything. You know, they they're crazy. It just rubs me the wrong way. It's incompetence. And then and, and then they get some sort of blank check for it too. You know, like Sony, there's been there's been there has been there has been nothing done legally for against Sony for how incompetent they were in securing the network. And there will probably be nothing done for Talk Talk. Because you know what, jihadists, what could they do? Jihadists. And they're not just regular jihadists, they're cyber jihadists. I well, just, she Yeah, go ahead. She she might not be able to run an ISP properly, but she definitely knows how to spin the story. Um yeah. We're going to get in a, into a classic case of three points, hackers, dark web, ISIS, and that's going to run the whole of the rest of the story. They're not going to get blamed for this. Yeah, and they say that they've been contacted by an Id- individual. They're not sure if it's actually the individual that hacked them or not, uh, asking for this ransom. Uh, yeah. But she said they didn't provide any proof they were the actual hacker. This is a really interesting story. I mean... Uh, any other thoughts from the mumbrum before we move on? Because it's, it's so breaking right now that we don't have a lot more information. But It uh, seems to me that everyone is blaming ISIS for everything. It's 
Oh, prices for this is going up. It's ISIS's fault. It's gas prices are going up. It's ISIS's fault. This guy got murdered. It's ISIS. I like it. That actually works for me. Sure. I, maybe I could take advantage of that. I'm sorry, honey. It's ISIS's fault. Uh, ISIS is the new Obama. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, ISIS. So uh, let's blame ISIS for this one. Apparently, YouTube stars, I don't know who those are, are getting super upset. So you may have heard that YouTube Red, no, not Red Tube. <laughs> That's something else. YouTube Red is rolling out with uh, a $9.99 a month uh, subscription fee. And uh, YouTube partners are being told to sign up or their videos will not be available on the YouTube website, at least not publicly. And I am a YouTube partner. Jupiter Broadcasting is. And so we have two options. We can join the partnership program or the new partnership program or we have our content removed. YouTube is finally throwing its own hat into the ring of online streaming services by rolling out a monthly subscription channel with no ads and the promise of original content. For $9.99 a month, YouTube Red subscribers can enjoy ad-free videos on any platform, mobile, computer, and TV, along with the option of offline viewing. The new service also folds in offshoots YouTube Music Key and YouTube Gaming. But the new business venture spells out trouble for video creators who don't sign on to the new subscription plan. Offline viewing is interesting. Uh, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. I thought YouTube ads were supposed to be unobtrusive. I thought YouTube ads weren't that bad. I mean, I thought that's what we've been told all this time. Is they, yeah, yep. you, you got pre-roll videos, but you can skip them after 15 seconds. Yeah, sure, you got this, you got that, but you can turn that off. Uh, now, all of a sudden, ads are so bad that we have to pay for a service to remove them? Yeah, this sounds to me like something I was afraid of. YouTube is going to become a pay site, and it's going to kill YouTube. Now we need to have GNUTube. Yeah, maybe. YouTube confirmed to TechCrunch that if creators who earn a cut of ad revenue refuse to sign the deal, their videos would be completely hidden from public view. They wouldn't appear in the YouTube Red Ad Fee free service, nor would they appear on YouTube's regular ad-supported service. Yikes. Uh, here's what the claim... Here's what it looks like. You know, uh, now, Google claims that creators will get the vast, vast majority of the revenue, but the partner program terms that have been leaked appear to say... That 55% of the revenue goes to the creator. YouTube Red priced at $9.99 a month. Anybody in the mumble room going to try it? Nope. I will drop YouTube if this continues. I will... Yeah, it just... It's, if, it, this, yeah. if this continues, I will, con, I will drop YouTube entirely and I will find somewhere else. I think, uh, I, think I know who will pay for it. I think it's going to be parents. Because the YouTube is... It is so big with the kids, like the younger kids. Uh, it is just they don't. I mean, th- this that generation d- is not watching. Inf- the ones that I see are not watching. All of my kids and all of their friends and all of my friends' kids, none of them are watching TV. They're all on YouTube when they wa- when they're consuming video based media like that. It's all on YouTube, tablets, phones, or the computer. All YouTube. All the time. And if I would let him, my son would literally huddle in a corner with a tablet and watch Minecraft videos 24-7. He would forego eating, sleep, anything to just watch nothing but Minecraft videos. And you know, here's what my son's become an expert on. The latest toys at McDonald's. The latest toys on Amazon. The latest plush for this game, game. The latest plush for that game. They are constantly cramming commercials in front of him. My son has gone from not knowing anything about what's on sale or how much things cost or any, to completely being completely aware of like, if we, if we drive by, oh yeah, they're selling the new Star Wars toy, dad. Can we go in there and get it? McDonald's, dad. McDonald's, I wanna, you, what do you mean you want to go to McDonald's? No. No. So, I, maybe. 
If I could pay $9.99 and all of my kids could go ad-free, that might be worth it. I'm surprised at the name. YouTube Red conjures up a few other things. But um, All right, so just a couple more stories to get to for the day, and then uh, we're going to talk Glucosio. And uh, this one I wanted to just mention because speaking of Amazon, uh, you, th- you guys need to be aware of fake reviews. It's becoming more and more of an issue, so much so that Amazon's taking some serious action here. They're suing more than 1,000 sellers uh, who were misleading Amazon's customers, quote-unquote, by selling fake reviews of products, quote-unquote, according to a complaint the company filed in the Seattle court this Friday. The lawsuit targets account holders on Fiverr.com, a marketplace for odd jobs where gigs are sold for $5 and up. Amazon doesn't know who is behind the accounts, so it lists them all as John Doe in the suit. Most of the defendants offer positive or five-star reviews for Amazon sellers' products. Indeed, many encourage the Amazon seller to create a text for their own reviews. In at least one instance, the seller of a verified review was willing to receive an empty envelope, not the product itself, to simply create a shipping record. That's how sophisticated they're getting, is they work with the seller to have the seller ship them something to create the record, even if it's just an empty envelope. So this is going on a lot, and Amazon's really trying to crack down. And then two more bits of information, and uh, we're going to move in. So let's encrypt. This is something that we've been sort of tangentially following in the TechSnap program, and it's reached a really important milestone this week. Let's encrypt is trusted. They say we're pleased to announce that we've received cross signatures from Iden Trust, which makes our certificate, which means our certificates are now trusted by all major browsers. This is a significant milestone since it means the visitors to websites using Let's Encrypt cer- certificates can enjoy a secure browsing experience with no special configuration required. So one of the things that I'm looking forward to out of this project, besides free and easy SSL certs, and I think the code's already been written for this. I think I actually, I think I tried it one time. I can't remember. It's been a while. Is there are like packages and scripts for your distributions out there of Linux. And you can get a real SSL cert from the command line. And depending on the distro and the script, configure your web server to use HTTPS all with a single command. Now, I, I, I don't know if I'm making this very clear, but from one command on the command line, you can get a legitimate SSL certificate, a free one, have it downloaded, installed, and configured on your machine. This, for me, is to me, seems to be a huge, huge, huge boost to just getting the rest of the web on SSL. For identity uh, verification, number one, that's what I think is a big deal, and number two, we have been seeing more and more and more uses of web traffic by ISPs and cellular companies. Remember, we covered the Verizon Super Cookie last week, where when you're not using HTTPS, they're grabbing your data, they're grabbing your traffic, they're inserting cookies, the Super Cookie, for example, for ad tracking of their own at the ISP level. When you go SSL, that's way more challenging, way more difficult, not to mention it makes it harder for the state agencies as well. I think it's really cool. Yes, it's one SSL free per domain name. Yeah. Yeah, you still got to buy the domain name. That's very true. That's very true. Uh, but yeah, it's a great thing for like your own open media server or your own own cloud installation. Very much so. I think this is really nice. Yes, there's also pizza via the command line and Jimmy John's via the command line. Uh, any thoughts from the mumble room on Let's Encrypt before we move into uh, one of our last stories of the day? Well, I like that idea. But if CISPA ends up passing, it'll all be for naught anyway. Maybe. I mean, so that it's actually things like CISPA might, which just is clearing the Senate, uh, might uh, might encourage people to do these kinds of things because 
So the, the part that people don't like about CISPA is the part that allows for total indemnification for anybody who shares, quote unquote, cyber attack information or cyber threat information with the federal government. So if you turn over whole cloth users, traffic user data, or they come to you and they request it, there's zero recourse for any consumers to take. And there's really, it's just, they just, they wipe, they, they, they wipe their hands clean, just like we did for the telcos. So that's what people don't really like about CISPA. Now, if that's going to happen, wouldn't you want the data that they're handing over to be encrypted? Like, doesn't that actually more underscore the need for this than anything else? It's not just Verizon, but it's, it's everything, right? Yeah, CISPA is just a massive breach of privacy and security, really. Yeah. If it passes, it's... Yeah, I think it's actually... Well, one, I, I think they're literally just calling it CISA now, by the way, too. I don't even think it has the P anymore. I think they just dropped all pretense of privacy. <laughs> I, think, I, don't it, think, I don't think it actually has the P. I think it's, it's kind of adorable that way. Uh, it, there's... Um, yeah. There's one I read somewhere that there's there's a new bill passing that will make anything encrypted illegal. It's it's they're writing it that it's not hasn't gone through yet, but they're writing it. And from what I've heard, it will make any and all encryption illegal for regular people. Well, it will only be. I invite them to try that one. That would be a good one to watch. I I think that would be quite the show. Wow. Yep. Wow. I, yeah. <clears throat> um. Okay. So this is why some of these things, this next story kind of underscores why some of these things are unsettling. You've heard of services like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Not too surprisingly, it appears that law enforcement is going to these companies and subpoenaing users' DNA. Uh, five years later, there was, uh, there's a couple of different cases going on. Once five years go in now, and Cashmere Hill writes that five years later when 23andMe and Ancestry.com both have over a million customers – uh, there are interesting ways that, de- that law enforcement is going back and trying to solve old cases by going to get the data from these two companies. She says, your relative's DNA could turn you into a suspect, warns Wired, writing about a case from earlier this year in which the New Orleans filmmaker Michael Yersley became a suspect in an unsolved murder case after cops did a genetic search using semen collected in 1996. The cops searched Ancestry.com database and got familiar match on the saliva sample that Ursri's father had given years earlier. Ursri was ultimately determined to be innocent, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation called it a wild goose chase that demonstrated the very real threats to privacy and civil liberties posted by law enforcement and access to private genetic databases. Both Ancestry.com and 23andMe stipulate in their privacy policies that they will turn information over to law enforcement if served with a court order. 23andMe says it's received a couple of requests from both state law enforcement and FBI. But it says it so far has, quote, successfully resisted them. 23andMe's first privacy officer, Katie Black, who joined the company in February, says 23andMe plans to launch a transparency report like those published by Google and Facebook within the next month or so, which I actually think is out already. Uh, Ancestry.com would not say specifically how many requests it's gotten from law enforcement, but it wanted to clarify in the other case that some of that information was available publicly. Uh, they do say on occasion we're required by law to do so. In this final instance, we were. We have cooperated with law enforcement and the courts to provide only the specific information requested, but comment on the specifics. Uh, but we don't comment on the specifics of cases. <sighs> That's kind of unfortunate, but not surprising. Uh, but it kind of gives you an under kind of gives you an understanding of why things like CISPA or CISA, whatever you want to call it, are so important. Is because as technology is moving into this area of a lot of really interesting data that can be collected, uh, what happens to that data is going to become more and more of a concern to people, I think. 
Any thoughts before we move on, guys? I'm just kind of amazed that they uh, were able to store semen for that long. <laughs> they got to have a good freezer, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe I could use that for my steaks. That'd be wonderful. All right, so last news story today that just really got my attention, and uh, I'm really excited about the Fairphone because Ars Technica got their hands on the Fairphone 2, the modular phone uh, from a Dutch startup shipping in December. And uh, this is really neat stuff. This is really, really cool. It's basically all you need is a screwdriver, and then you can put it together in pieces. The different components can pop out, and uh, they always snap together with a silicon case that kind of holds it all together as that. The smartphone consists of seven major building blocks, the back cover, removable battery, display assembly, the main chassis, the receiver module, a rear camera module, and a speaker module. Positioned uh, this way, the components that uh, break most often, like the screen, are isolated for better repairability. In addition to swappable blocks, you can even change things inside the modules. For example, a mic or a speaker. They're press-fit, not glued, and they can be extracted with simple tools. And uh, it is it does look really cool. They have a video where they uh, do a disassembly of it. The modules are held together by Phillips screws marked with blue circles, so all the screws are all the same. So you don't have to remember which one goes where. So you really can't make a mistake in that process. And you can see here he's removing the silicon case. And that silicon case actually has a spot for an adapter to be added to the back. So you can snap things onto the back of the case and add even more functionality. Now he's removing the battery. And you can see the, the individual modules start to uh, become pretty obvious. There's the back connector you can see there. Now he's pulling out the camera modules. Now, this isn't something you do on a regular basis, of course, but the idea here would be uh, you get one of these Fairphones, and then you can start individually replacing components as you need them. Uh, here's another uh, shot of the uh, connector on the back. Uh, one of the things that uh, I like a lot about uh, this project is uh, they're going to offer it with uh, Android 5.1 stock today, which doesn't have very many uh, modules. You know, they haven't really made very many changes with it. So right now, today, it comes with uh, 5.1 stock. However... They want to make the phone OS agnostic. They say, as a next step, we're working on giving users the choice of the operating systems they want to use. How about that? Instead of being limited to just one manufacturer as pre-selected, we're talking to alternative OS vendors like Yala, Ubuntu, and Firefox. Now, this is cool. I don't know how far this could go for non-geeks, but to me, this feels an awful lot like building your own PC. Like, uh, like you know, an enthusiast custom machine. I don't know. I find this to be extremely exciting. Anybody in the mumble room excited about the Fairphone? And also the Fairphone, the people behind Fairphone or anything like that? It seemed like a great group. I'm, I'm really excited about this. This is the Fairphone 2. Yes. And the Fairphone 1 was all about non-conflict materials. So most right. phones are made out of things like gold, tantalum, and tin, which people die over getting those mined. They they pledged to not use conflict materials. Um, the Fairphone 2 not only has this extra modularity, but they have pledges to open source, giving the users as much of the source code as they can. It won't be completely proprietary free, but it will be one of the most open source phones you can get on the market. Yeah. Um, the uh, pre-orders are up right now, and I guess they're, they're aiming for a... Uh December ship date, the website is really, really cool. If you go to fairphone.com and uh, start scrolling down, the thing assembles in the web page. It is so neat. This I, I, cool. I am really nerdy about this for some reason. And you can see 
So it looks like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Phillips screws. That is not bad. That is not bad. You know, and I just totally busted my phone up too. So I don't think I can wait that long, but oh, I want that. That is, I think that is a really neat development. And it reminds me of when I first realized I could build my own PC and have it just the way I want it and then replace parts of it over time. That would be the real key thing is now they claim five years of support too. That would be groundbreaking if they can actually pull that off. I don't know how that's possible. But uh, five years of support, if they just mean in hardware modules or something, that would be fantastic. So Fairphone.com, if you want to check it out, Fairphone.com. All right. So speaking of phones, Benjamin joins us to talk about Glucosio. Glucosio is a brand new app that is out on Android. And it, as you probably guessed from the name, involves tracking blood sugar levels, I believe. So, Benjamin, welcome to Tech Talk today. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about it? Hey, yeah. So, um, Glucosio is a, it's actually a free and open source software project um, that I founded along with a team of uh, passionate developers and open source contributors. Um, I myself was diagnosed with diabetes back in May. Um, so when looking into open source mobile apps to track my own diabetes, I realized there was um, nothing out there very useful. Uh, everything was proprietary, monetized, and uh, had a terrible user experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we saw this gap where basically open source software was uh, part of people was not a part of people's personal health routine. Um, and for diabetes, we wanted to solve this by offering a user centered app with a modern design on Android and iOS. Um, and uh, yeah. I have to, you know, I have some, I have some recent experience uh, with uh, diabetes, and I have to say, not myself, but my girlfriend does. She's had it her whole life too. And one of the things that I have learned is extremely important is actually having a little bit of historical data to work with, so she can kind of see how things have been going for a couple of days. And uh, so this is something that she has been on a search for for quite a while. And, you know, having good data and keeping track of this kind of stuff can make a real difference in her day-to-day health. So for, 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 for specifically for diabetics, this kind of thing is extremely valuable because she's always got her phone with her. Yeah, that's, that's totally true. Um, you know, having data to present to your physician and also as an individual to see how your, uh, you know, your activity and food um, alongside your glucose levels, how it all fits together is really important. Um, but more importantly, with Glucosio, another thing we're trying to do is allow opt-in to um, share anonymized glucose trends and demographics with researchers. Um, so we're already in talks with a number of universities around the around the country. Um, you know, talking about opening up. We have an API we're building so that mm-hmm. we can get this information to researchers and help them understand. Uh, you know, trends at very large. Um, population sizes, uh, parts of the diabetes population, so they can, you know, see whether uh, certain genders, um, uh, certain uh, ethnicities have, uh, you know, differences in how, uh, you know, the disease affects them. And what, so what is sort of the, is it, is it, is there data in there that uh, you're hoping an aggregate may help people in the future with uh, managing diabetes? Or is there, is there another specific kind of a bit of information that you get when you look at a mass populace like that? Like, what's some of the big things you get when you bring it all together like that? Because I would imagine some people might be like, ooh, what are the advantages? It sounds risky to put my data in there. So there must be a pretty good trade-off. I mean, I, I, I realize it's anonymous, but that's, you know, what people might think. 
Well, yeah. So one of the one of the long term goals um, right now, you can track just glucose. We want to add the ability to add, um, you know, your proteins, carbohydrates, uh, what medications you're taking, um, and also do things like Google Fit integration for Android, HealthKit integration for iOS. Um, so we want to kind of give a high resolution um, view of how diabetes affects people, and then allow um, that to be seen at an aggregate level. Um, you know, so researchers would be able to see uh, a person in India, a woman who has a certain diet type, is of a certain age category, is impacted more by diabetes than somebody in the United States that has a totally different diet, different age group. Um, and this will help them shape treatments and advice, uh, you know, to help everybody, basically. Um, so, yeah. Very nice. And uh, I noticed, too, that, uh, you, like you mentioned right now, it's an Android app, but it's really, it's also coming to uh, iOS and other platforms as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. We actually just pushed our first major code uh, push to our uh, our repo for iOS. Um, we're looking forward to making an HTML5 app that will work both for Firefox OS and Ubuntu Phone. Um, we've had interest in a Windows Phone app um, hmm. that's not totally on our roadmap yet, but Firefox OS and Ubuntu Phone is something that we're looking into cool. and definitely want to do. Cool. So uh, this is through and through an open source project, right, it, with, a, with a, a sort of a governance model and all of that. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so we have a, a modular uh, open source governance model. It's uh, kind of a fork of how Mozilla does projects. Um, I'm our BDFL, and then underneath me we have various teams with uh, team leads that make decisions uh, in each component of the project. We have a lead for Android, we have a lead for iOS, we have a lead for our API, and as we expand to other applications, we'll have leads in those areas that get to make decisions. So you must have had some interest from commercial companies or other. I mean, there must be somebody's going to be watching this at some point and go, gosh, I'd like to buy this property. Is that possible? Is that doable? We have had interest from um, some of the most, the largest uh, glucose meter manufacturers, both mm. in the United States and globally. Mm -hmm. um, to, to actually support us, they are very interested in having their devices have automatic import, which I it kind of baffled me because I, it's you know it's a very closed game, yeah. uh, health health hardware, health software. Or were you like you realize that I could replace you eventually? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, I'm actually where I'm I'm sitting down um, this month with Dexcom, which is one of the largest manufacturers of glucose uh, meters. Um, and and they want to work with us. Their R and D labs are very interested in adding support. Um, we are a free and open source uh, software project. We're not here to make money. We're here to help people. Um, we're not interested in selling. Um, we're not interested in uh, converting to a uh, paid model or doing any kind of monetization. Uh, we do hope in the next uh, six months or so to do a crowd uh, funding um, so that we can help uh, basically form a foundation, a five hundred one three. Uh, 501 501c3 nonprofit so that right, we can right. uh, continue to accept donations and get grants and, and fund this uh, without any kind of monetization. Wow. Okay, so I'll keep an eye out for that. So, Benjamin, I was just curious. Uh, I don't know, is this your first foray into a uh, app on the Play Store? And what's your experience about shipping an Android application and developing for that platform just from, you know, your involvement in the project so far? Um. So this is my first time personally shipping a product through the Play Store. I've worked 
before this as a Firefox uh, release manager with Mozilla Project. So I, I, I had some involvement right. um, with releasing uh, Firefox for Android. Um, but this is the most hands-on. Um, the process has been very simple. We uh, published our first APA, APK, and it was live within four or five hours. Um, iOS, I'm hoping, is going to be just as easy. Um, they want more money, of course. That's $99 a year versus $25 <laughs> yeah. uh, one time. Um, uh, but we have somebody that specializes on iOS working on that. Um, you know, we have a really great team of contributors and people that have experience. In fact, uh, uh, our lead Android developer, uh, Paulo, has worked on the Numex project. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but yeah. they oh, yeah. I icons and different apps and stuff yeah. uh, surrounding Ubuntu and other free software that's out there. So yeah, we have some... a great team. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I love that. Uh, so uh, it doesn't sound like you have a date yet, but uh, I've been specifically requested to ask if you know when roughly the iOS version will ship. Soon? Um, hopefully within the next two to three months. Okay, there you go. Good enough. I, I can pass that along. Well, uh, if anybody in the Mumble Room has any questions, go ahead. But Benjamin, was there anything you want to touch on specifically before we wrap uh, up? I just want to add, answer uh, Baconator's uh, question yeah. about licensing. Yeah. Um, our standard license is the GPL v3, um, and then all of our content, uh, text, stuff like that is uh, Creative Commons. Um, um, yeah, and that, that covers it. So this sounds like it's a project that's going to be around for a long time, and maybe one of the next phases that we're going to see is a crowdfunding initiative. So touch in with us when that happens, and... Uh, let us know because I think it's a good effort, and uh, now I have a personal connection to it as well. It's Excellent, a, that sounds good. I hope, and I hope that I, I mean the project seems like it's already going really well, and I hope it continues to be a success. Uh, now, is there any? Okay, now I have. I guess I do have one last question. Uh, just thinking about it from a usability standpoint, what what are some of the next things like syncing between machines, devices? Have you looked into stuff like that? Is that a possibility? What about data protection and things like that? So. Um... One of the things we're trying to do as we look at the big picture for all of our apps is we want to minimize um, any data that we take um, to protect our user privacy, not because we don't feel that we'll protect it ourselves, but, uh, you know, it's just creates security issues and more work for us to try to protect that data. So any data that we do collect from users from the app is anonymized at the app level. So nothing sensitive or personal identifying ever goes to us and it's 100% opt-in. It's not opt-out because, you know, that's not really great. Um, as far as features, if we do have a desktop app in the future or a web app, the plan is to have syncing between the t uh, between all these devices. Again, the app itself does not store any mm -hmm. uh, sensitive data, um, so your data is protected. Um, and other features, like I've told you, like we want to do integrations. One of the concepts we had for Android and iOS is uh, Philips Hue. Ooh. So um, imagine you forgot to <laughs> check check your glucose. You could uh, the app itself could send a reminder um, through uh, Philips Hue's API and yeah. change the color in your living room to red. I love it. That is that would work every single time. So Benjamin, are you hoping this eventually becomes a full time project for you that consumes you know the, the bulk of your time, or is this going to be Sort of just something that is one of the many things you plan to be doing. I I hope that we can scale up the team. We have over a, a hundred and two contributors, not full time, but we have a team of about ten folks that are full time right now. A hundred and two uh, overall, and my idea is to continue to scale the project into a very large open source project, so that I can continue to work on other things, but also still be very much involved in this project. Cool. Well, I love it, and keep us posted on how it goes. 
And you guys can find more at glucosio.org. We'll have links in the show notes as well to the GitHub page, uh, the Play Store, anywhere else you want us to send folks to. Um, yeah, I'll post some links to uh, IRC. Thanks, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, yeah, you bet. And thanks for letting me uh, chat with you for a bit about it. I've been following it online for a couple of weeks now. So glucosio.org, if you guys want to check that out. And uh, <laughs> there you go. And uh, Benjamin just uh, did the link spam in the uh, show notes. Oh, it's also, that's right. I was going to point out also in the F-Droid. Yeah, good point. So uh, I will have links to that stuff in the show notes. Now, before we get out of here, we do have to wrap it up. I mean, you know, we have only been here this this week on one day. So that means by sort of automatic, by default, this has to be the day uh, that we do our Kickstarter of the week. So, ladies and gentlemen, I present you our Kickstarter of the week. And this one is pretty cool. I believe it was submitted by Micro89 in the Tech Talk Today subreddit. Using a green frickin' laser, you can turn your cell phone into a full-fledged 3D scanning imaging machine. Watch out, Hollywood. So this started about a year ago, where we had to measure the contours of an organic surface. Turns out that's a very hard problem. The only available solution costs $20,000, and that, that's ridiculous. So we set out to build our own. We looked at what was available out there at the intersection of computer vision and surface measurement, and we couldn't find a single solution that was compelling. The 3D scanners that were precise cost tens of thousands of dollars, and the ones that were affordable weren't precise at all. Today, that changes. So we've invented the Eora 3D Scanner, the world's first high-precision 3D scanner that is purpose-built for a modern smartphone. We're only just beginning to explore the possibilities of capturing the world in 3D. 3D printing is an amazing tool. It converts a digital file into a physical object. Some call it an industrial revolution. The Eora 3D Scanner does the exact opposite of a 3D printer. It lets artists, makers, and designers capture objects and surfaces and turn them into high-quality 3D models and use them as part of the creative process. We knew we had to use a smartphone. Modern phones are simply amazing. The Eora 3D Scanner is powered entirely by your smartphone. Using it is easy. Just open the app and press scan. It'll automatically adjust focus and exposure and drive a green laser to scan your object. As it sweeps, we take over 1,000 photos and analyze them in real time to give you a 3D model. A typical scan takes three to five minutes and gives you a full color mesh with up to eight million points. With a range of one meter, you can capture objects big and small. Accurate to less than 100 microns, that's the thickness of a single sheet of paper. When engineering the scanner, we had one objective in mind, precision. All that's possible thanks to a design that's both beautiful and functional. So there you go. It is a, uh, and you can watch the rest of the video on their site. So they've got 1,226 backers. They're going, they're going for a goal of $80,000. They have raised $344,000 with 26 days left to go. So they've pretty much reached their goal. And, you know, you can get in for a pretty good price, uh, $225, $229 at the early adopter price. And they, had, they also had a $199, really, really early one, but, uh, well, that one went away really fast. So it seems to be a legit 3D scanner for your phone that's probably going to cost under $200. It is available also for Android. It is not just iOS. Uh, they did have to limit it to the Nexus 6 uh, the HTC One and above, the S5 and above on Samsung and the Xperia Z4. They did kind of pick a limited range. Same really, really though with the iPhone. You can't go beyond the. You can't go below the I, uh, iPhone 5C 
uh, with this. So sub 100 microns, up to 800 million ver- uh, verticals, they say, or vertices. I don't even know what those are. Uh, looks pretty neat. What do you think, Mum Room? Would you uh, be interested in a project? Would Say this is a reasonable price. Would you be interested in something like this for your phone? Is there any use for you? Nobody? Oh, come on. Even like a – well, actually, I don't really know what my use would be either now that I think about it. Hmm. They sure have a lot of really good examples. Vertisize, yeah. Come on, Corky. You know you want one. Come on, don't you? You know you do. But that's just an uh, iPhone, right? Uh, no, it works with Android too. I would I'm imagine sure. I would imagine it's pretty limited. You'd have to see it in action. All right. Okay. What about you, Sean? Would you be curious? And if, say, you know, it was a reasonable price in your affordable range and it worked with your existing phone, this is kind of a neat accessory, right? No. <laughs> okay. Would, okay. Would you have to have perfectly stable hands? Would stabilization be an issue when scanning? They uh, they give you a, looks like a motorized dolly or I'm sorry, lazy Susan that you put the thing on. You put it on a on a motorized lazy Susan and or whatever it's called, a lazy Sally, and uh, and that's what does it. So I'm gonna hit play here. So they're starting the scan process, and you can see. Uh, I'll jump forward a little bit. You can uh, – yeah, there you go. So that has a laser that moves across the device. And then if you don't have it on a rotating thing, you have to move the device around. Or you just take the – or you take an image of one side. Yeah. Yeah, so okay. All right, that's a little tricky. They have a Bluetooth turn – that has a Bluetooth turntable. Boy, that's harder to say than it sounds. So uh, it looks like the slightly more expensive version comes with a Bluetooth turntable. So it kicks off and it spins it. It spins it for you. So you put it on a. So it has to be able to fit on that Bluetooth turntable if you want to be able to get a 360 of it. Huh? Yeah, that doesn't sound like any of us are all that excited about. It. You know, I thought with the backing it had, we would be pretty excited about it. But you know, it just sounds a little bit too esoteric, doesn't it? But you can find a link to it if you want to check it out and back it because uh, they still have 26 days to go for the high-precision 3D scanning on your smartphone. Yeah, I would agree. Count zero. It seems like the turntable would be absolutely required. Unless you just want the front of something. I want the turntable. I just want a Bluetooth. You know what? I would back a Bluetooth turntable. <laughs> How about that? Hey, you know what else you could back? The whole dang network. Patreon.com slash today. Go over there and back the network and support the Jupiter Broadcasting Network as we continue to grow. Try to add more support staff and beef up for future shows and plan for the future. And help keep a little weird by giving us the leverage we need to pick and choose from the sponsors. Because our primary source of funding can come from our audience at Patreon.com slash today. That means you can trust what we say because, well, we report to the audience. That also means you get to vote with your wallet from time to time, which is good and bad, but it's how the process works. And there's also some exclusives for those of you who sign up at patreon.com slash today. And if you're in the swag level, check your mailboxes because some swag went out recently. Patreon.com slash today. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again to Benjamin for coming on. Go, guys, go find the links to his stuff in the show notes. And uh, I'm planning to do another Friday edition next week, so I'd like to know wh- what you thought. There is a thread going right now in the subreddit that just got started today about different segment ideas and your ideas on the Friday edition of Tech Talk. Let me know what you think. Uh, techtalktoday.reddit.com. So we've recently been doing intros to TV shows as sort of the end of show video. And it struck me. How did I not think of this beforehand? I mean, I, was, I like the TV intros, but I, I, I want to share with you something Something from way deep in my childhood. I grew up with a video game series. And I believe this video game series reached its peak around 1994. And I loved it. And so today, I'm going to play the intro to one of the best video games ever created. 
as an homage, as a look back. And if you have a great video game intro that you loved, techtalktoday.reddit.com, I might consider it. I've been getting pulled down from YouTube a lot recently, so I'll probably change to something else soon. But I had to give a shout-out to this great game. And uh, we're just going to play a little bit of the intro because it is a classic. Thanks for joining me, techtalktoday.reddit.com, to contribute, patreon.com slash today to keep us going, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to find the lifetime in your local time zone, and jblive.tv is where you watch it. See you back here next Friday.